Amen. Please be seated. Take out your Bibles, please, and open them up with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. Matthew, chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible with you, please grab one from under a seat close by in front of you. Matthew, chapter 22. As we continue our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew together, we begin at the beginning of chapter 22 today, but we're beginning in the middle of a uh, conversation, an exchange that is taking place up on the Temple Mount, just outside the Temple itself, as we mentioned last week, in the Court of the Gentiles area, between Jesus and specifically the religious leaders that are there, but we know that there is a very large group of people that are around and that are hearing all that is going on between Jesus and the religious leaders. Jesus, last week we looked at a couple of parables that he gave to them, and they understood, as we pointed that out last week, at the, that they understood that Jesus was speaking about them in this parable. And it, it didn't drive them to repentance. If anything, it dug in their heels even more. And it tells us that we saw at the end of chapter 21, verse 46, when they sought to seize him, they feared the people. So they wanted to seize Jesus even at that moment. But we follow along with me, beginning in verse 1. We see another parable that Jesus gives to them. Jesus spoke to them again in parable saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm and another to his business. Verse six, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. So those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all that they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Verse 11, but when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into outer darkness in a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. As we read this account this parable that Jesus teaches. There's no doubt that a few emotions are probably stirred as we look through this. And, and we can read this, and, and again, in, in seeing this, it can, be, it can be difficult in some of the areas that we look at. And as we look at this parable more in depth, we're going to understand that it really depends which side you're on as to whether this is a glorious thing or a terrible thing. 
It's amazing how we can look at something exactly the same, the exact same thing, but from two different perspectives, from two different sides, and see something completely differently, get something completely differently out of it. We were blessed this week. Some friends of ours gave us two tickets to the Thursday night football game. And I was amazed to see how many Minnesota Vikings fans there were at the game. <laughs> and I was also amazed to see how disappointed they were after the game. Because <laughs> I was thinking, didn't you see the same game I saw? I mean, I'm pretty excited right now. What depends on what side you're looking at. And when we look at a parable like this, it really does one of two things, and that's my prayer today. It either comforts the afflicted or it afflicts the comfortable. <laughs> and that is, that is, as we look at this here, no doubt Jesus' intent, speaking to specifically to the religious leaders who are comfortable in their position in his his, his point, no doubt, is to rock their world with what he is saying, but also those who are on the outside, those who feel on the outside, to give them great comfort. We see that Jesus speaks to them again in verse 1 in parables. Parables, those, those as we've seen many times, Jesus speaks in parables. He said that he did that because those with spiritual ears will hear and will understand. It is a it's a story, it's an illustration using current events, using things that the people, that the hearers would be familiar with to try to explain a heavenly concept to them. Speaking here of the kingdom of heaven, he says in verse 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they are unwilling to come using terms that they can relate to. A king, a wedding feast, a son, the son of a king. They would be able to relate to those terms even far greater than we would in America today. He does this to try to explain again, and we're going to see this as we look through this. He's explaining the kingdom of heaven. He's explaining something that is impossible for us to fully grasp how great it is with current things that we have. I, I, I struggle to even illustrate this illustration. Other than this morning, as I was sitting there um, in my office this morning, and as I do each week, I, I FaceTime with, with uh, Pastor Ray in New Jersey, and we talk together a little bit and pray together, and, and it's a sweet time. Look forward to it every Sunday morning. And I wonder if I was to meet up with Charles Spurgeon and try to explain that to him. Hey, I was FaceTiming Pastor Ray this morning. What? What is that? Well, you, you know, it's, it's a little thing. It's about, it's about this big, not about, about that wide, too, and there's a screen on it. What? Yeah, it's a touch screen, and you can actually touch it, and then I can actually, it'd be just like you and D.L. Moody. You'd be able to talk to each other real time. What? You're trying to use terms and, and things that, so Jesus here is explaining the kingdom of heaven using terms that they'd be able to understand. Falling way far short of the glory of what he's really trying to express, but to them, giving them something that they can hold on to. And here he describes it, again, using a king, wedding feast, a son. No doubt when they hear king, they're thinking a gracious king 
inviting all of these guests, a glorious king, a good king. Perhaps their mind goes immediately to their favorite king, King David, thinking back to that, and then a wedding feast, a feast that a king would throw at a wedding. And in that, there is the delicacies and the, and the food that would be there that they wouldn't eat any other time. It's, it's recorded for us in 1 Kings chapter 4. Solomon's daily provisions, King Solomon, David's son. It says in verse 22 of chapter 4 of 1 Kings, Solomon's provisions for one day, 30 cores of fine flour, 6 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, for, the, for those of you who prefer the pasture-fed, all-natural, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. That's Solomon's everyday buffet. This is a wedding feast, and a wedding feast for the king's son, perhaps even the, the emphasis on his only son. So imagine the grandeur, the, the, the event that Jesus is describing to them, how glorious it is. But notice, he says that the call went out to the invited guests, but they were unwilling to come. An invitation had gone out earlier saying, hey, this event is coming, and that was normal in that time. This event is coming up, get ready, be ready. And then when everything is ready, the second invitation goes out to those that were invited and they all come then. So this second invitation goes out, it's all ready, come on, everything's all set. And they're like, no, no thanks, I'll pass. Unwilling to come. The word there again means to, be, to refuse it. They came and they literally said, no. Now, Imagine again now the people, there, there would be like, who would ever do that? And I wonder what the reaction of the king would be. Can any earthly king, what reaction would be immediately? But here we see that not only is he a gracious and a good king, but he is a merciful king. Look at verse four. Again, he sent out slaves saying. You see a beautiful picture of the heart of God. They understood exactly what Jesus was speaking. The king is representative of God. And here, the heart of God. He's long-suffering. He's merciful. He's patient. Again, he sent out other slaves. Tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat and livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. A second chance is given. Behold, whenever we see that, that word means, hey, drop everything you're doing and look. Pay close attention. And that's this word, behold. And an explanation then of all that has been prepared. All of the goodness. Isaiah Chapter 55 records for us the words of the Lord in his heart. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. That's God's heart. We have a glorious king, a great king, a good king, a generous king, a long-suffering king. Generous. Delight yourself in abundance. 
This invitation that went out simply said to come. This isn't a potluck. <laughs> it wasn't the invitation of everybody bring something and we'll all share it. He says, I've taken care of any, everything. All you need to do is come and delight yourself in abundance. But it was met with apathy, continued indifference. It says they paid no attention to it. That they went their own way, some went to their own farm, some went to their own business, basically saying, yeah, we hear what you're, you're offering, but I'm good. I'm going to continue to do things my way. I'm going to continue to go this way. And again, hear the heart of God when he says, why do you do that? Why do you continue to chase after things that can never satisfy you? Not only will they not satisfy you, they cannot satisfy you. And he knows because he made us. And he knows what can truly satisfy us and what will only lead us down a path of disappointment. And the heart, the heart of the king here in our parable and the heart of God in Isaiah is, just come. I've prepared everything. They've hardened their hearts. And they continue to harden their hearts. And we see as our parable unfolds, God eventually rescinds the invitations. Eventually there comes a point where God finishes the hardening process. Romans chapter 1 speaks about that even, even in the world today. The very real reality of the fact that a heart can become so hard that God eventually finishes the process. And it's beyond hope at that point. That he eventually, it says in Romans chapter 1, in, on several occasions, he gave them over to their desires. He continually called, he continually revealed himself, he continually showed the truth, but they hardened their heart to the point so hard that he eventually gave them over. We see, and many people have pointed out and brought that up in, in discussions, that, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He didn't, Pharaoh never had a choice. God hardened Pharaoh's heart back in Exodus, and he did. It tells us very specifically, Exodus chapter 9, verse 12, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but that is after chapter 7, verse 23, chapter 8, verse 15, and chapter 8, verse 32, where it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. God revealed himself to Pharaoh in ways that all of, would blow every single one of our minds if we saw it happen. His power, his majesty, his glory displayed, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and eventually God gave him over to the hardness of his heart. If you're here today and you have continually pushed away the invitation, you may have everybody else in the room fooled. You maybe have even been fooling yourself into thinking that everything's okay, but you realize that the invitation has come again and again from the Lord and you've pushed it away. Every time you do, you harden your heart some more. Prophet Isaiah also records for us in Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. He is here today, again, extending you an invitation. Do not, don't push it away. Don't ignore it. As these did, they were apathetic, indifferent towards the invitation. But we also see a group that takes it to a whole nother level in verse 6. The rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. They moved from indifference 
apathy to antagonism, enmity. And it's amazing to me as we've seen this even just accelerate even in the last 10, 15 years, and even more so even in just the last couple of years, it never ceases to amaze me how angry and full of hatred people can be towards a God that they claim they don't believe in. Have you ever wondered about that? How can you hate something that you don't believe in? How can you be so angry at something that you don't believe in? And the aggression that is taken out against God from people who claim they don't believe in God? I don't know if you've seen this. It's been in the news the last couple of days, but I did a little research on it. This billboard that went up, it's not the first one, and I got a couple of these. These, these are three examples of billboards taken out by atheists to attack Christian this Christian holiday of Christmas. Dear Santa, all I want for Christmas is to skip church. I'm too old for fairy tales. This is a billboard that people pay a lot of money to put up. Second one, Go ahead and skip church. Just be good for goodness sake. Happy holidays. And the last one, go ahead and skip church. Just be good for goodness sake. And try not to think about burning in hell for eternity. Happy holidays. The animosity, again, towards a God they claim they don't believe in. I don't, I don't understand that, but you know what? The more I think about it, I, I do. I don't, I don't believe in Bigfoot. I don't believe in aliens. I don't believe in honest politicians. <laughs> but I don't, I don't aggressively go after them. I don't spend my hard-earned money to buy billboards to say, to say, there is no Bigfoot, it's a fairy tale. What, I mean, what's the difference? The difference is, deep down inside, I truly know there is no Bigfoot. Deep down inside, they truly know there is a God. And they are accountable to that God. And that is why they continue to harden their heart, because they don't want to submit to that. The Bible is clear that that is the case. No one will ever be able to say, you know, I really didn't know you existed. And we see the reaction of the king. Eventually, again, he is a God of love, of grace, and mercy, and long-suffering. And as Christians, we look at those traits of him, and we say, man, it seems unreal, but we embrace the total reality of it. But God is holy, and in his holiness, with his love and mercy and grace and long-suffering, he is also a just God. He is righteous. Justice. He cannot, he cannot be unjust. It's not even a possibility for him. So justice must take place. So his wrath is just as real as his love. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That is his heart. That is his desire. But repentance is a choice. He will not force himself on anyone. Justice is a reality for those who refuse to repent. Repentance, though, 
is available to everyone to repent and to turn to him. Well, verse 8, continue to look at the parable here that Jesus is telling. Verse 8 says, Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. The wedding is ready. He doesn't call it off. Everything is all set. Everything is ready to go, but those that were invited, he says, are unworthy. What does it mean to be worthy? What does worthiness involve? I want to know because I want to (laughs) go. I mean, I want to be a part of that. So what does it involve? Well, obviously an invitation is required. So who's invited? I love this. It says, as many as you find. He's not saying go around and look for those with the E on their sweaters for the elect. As many as you find. Go everywhere. The invitation goes to everyone. All that they found, the whosoevers. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will have everlasting life. The invitation goes out to everyone. And it says that the wedding hall was filled, both evil and good. Aren't you glad God didn't just choose the good? Because before he touched me with his grace and his forgiveness, I was a pretty evil guy. I'm so glad that he extended that invitation to me. Verse 11, but we can't miss this. This is extremely important because this worthiness that we are looking at. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend... How did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The king comes in and he inspects the guests. And he's inspecting to make sure that they're dressed appropriately, that they're dressed for the occasion. Now, there is a lot of debate about the Jewish wedding customs in the day about this particular incident or instance. When a king would give this, would the king provide garments for the, the feast, those that were attending it? Now I say that because there's some debate back and forth. And can I just say, does it really matter about that? Because we're talking about what does this have to do with us? The parable when it makes it for us. And the bottom line is, the king has provided garments for us. The garments have been provided for us. And when we look at this this idea again, the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus is describing this, it is always better than what we're able to come across in the explanation. He's, He's bringing it down to our level for us to understand. So we're looking here at the garments And what does it take for us to be accepted? What does it take for us to to have this invitation? 
And the garments are provided for us. Isaiah 61 verse 10 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with robes of righteousness. There's this awesome clothing exchange that goes on. Our filthy rags are exchanged for this glorious, custom-fit garment. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He exchanges our worn-out, miserable outfit for a glorious, beautiful, again, custom-fit one. He sees, though, as he looks out over the, the group that is there, this large group that is gathered, one stands out, and it's one who is wearing his own garments, one who is not dressed as everyone else is in the wedding garments. He didn't change for the wedding. He accepted the invitation, but he accepted it. He says, I'm just going to come as it is. Who does this guy think he is that tells me I have to dress a certain way? Who does this king think he is anyway? I'm not going to put that on. Telling me how to dress. So many people have that heart when it comes to the invitation of eternal life that Jesus extends. Who are you to tell me that it's, there's only one way? That this is the way it takes to get in there. You Christians are so narrow-minded telling me that there's only... Who are you? Who do you think you are telling me that Jesus is the only way? Who do you think you are telling me that, that I have to make him Lord of my life? I want to be Lord of my life. And if he can't take it, tough. I'm going to go in my own way. Tell me there's only one way. I'm going to get in my own way. And when I get there, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. I'm not stretching with that. Probably heard interviews of people. You know, the, the Hollywood, you know, like people really care what they think. And they, 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 what we, if Jesus is real, what would you say to him when you see him one day? And I've heard one say, when I see Jesus, if he's real, he's got some explaining to do. No. We look at verse 12. He was speechless. No doubt when he's, again, standing there, well, I'm not going to put that on. Who does he think he is? Just like we, you know, it, it's, you get those examples of where somebody's talking about somebody. Man, if I ever see him, I'm going to give him a piece of my Hey, oh, I didn't know you were there. <laughs> Probably talking to the other guests and saying, man, you guys dressed all like that. And blah, 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 looks up and speechless. Standing before the king. says that he had him bound and thrown out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I've mentioned that in the parable that Jesus is describing, he's using words that we try to describe, but again, fall way short of the glory of what is in the future for us as Christians. Same is true here. The description of the torment 
that faces those who reject Jesus is far worse than words can describe. And the words that he describes here are horrific. Outer darkness, that means darkness that goes beyond darkness we can understand. Darkness that is so dark you can feel it. Weeping, gnashing of teeth for eternity. It never stops. That is what Jesus says is, is there. But God's heart is that no one experience that. That all would come to repentance. He says, verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. Many hear the message, but few respond. All are given the opportunity. The invitation is sent out everywhere, but few responded. Jesus used these similar terms when he was speaking in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, but there are few who find it. Just because there are few that find it doesn't mean it's not God's will that everyone find it, and that it just because it's narrow doesn't mean it's too narrow that everyone can't be on it. It is there for everyone. God provided a way. He didn't have to. He did. And Jesus is that way. Paul wrote to Timothy, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. His desire is that no one is cast into outer darkness. Well, as I mentioned at the beginning, this is a, this is a difficult one to look at as we look at this from, from, from that side. It, the, the, if you're standing on that side of this parable, this is, this is horrific news. But if we stand on the other side of the parable, It's glorious news for those of us who are clothed in those garments of righteousness. Because though this is a parable, again, a a story that is used to describe something, we know that there is coming a day when it won't be a parable, it'll be a reality for us. In the book of Revelation, John records for us, in Revelation chapter 19, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. This is pointing to an event that will take place in the future, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we, as the church, as Christians, the church, the bride of Christ, will celebrate our wedding with Jesus. Glorious picture of what is ahead for us. And when we look at the parallels with the the Jewish wedding customs, again, very different than than our wedding customs. We see some beautiful parallels in that too. First of all, weddings were arranged back then. The parents would get together and agree, and the father of the groom would select the bride. We see that in many stories. Abraham, for one, choosing a bride for Isaac. 
The father of the groom selects the bride, and it tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. That we, as the bride of Christ, were chosen by the Father. The bride price was paid by the groom. A price was paid for his bride. Peter tells us that we were purchased. There was a price paid for us. It's not silver or gold, but his very precious blood poured out for us. There is a betrothal period, an engagement time, that is a a lengthy period of time in the Jewish culture, but during that time, it is just as though they were married, except they're not together. You can't break the engagement without going through official divorce proceedings. That's how it's, you're just as good as married, only you're not together yet. The, the, the groom goes to his father's home, goes to where his father lives, and he builds onto that a place for his bride and him to live. Meanwhile, the bride is preparing her garments for her wedding day. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come back, and I will get you. And I will bring you so that you will be with me where I am forever. The father is the one who says, son, it's time. Jesus said, I don't know the hour. And we don't know the hour, so we need to always be ready. We need to be getting ourselves ready for that moment, that marriage feast, when he comes back for his bride. And that is the pinnacle of the Jewish wedding, the marriage supper, the wedding feast. And we, again in Revelation, see the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in Revelation, it tells us the bride to make herself ready, fine linen, bright and clean, that the righteous acts of the saints. Now, when we look at that, doesn't the Bible tell us that all of our deeds are like filthy rags? So how can our righteous acts be those things that, that, that we wear, that we put on? Well, again, the garments are provided for us. Even... The righteous acts that we do to garland ourselves are provided for us. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. He does it all for us. Everything is laid out before us. He has prepared it before us. He's equipped us to walk in it. We will want nothing more that day than to present ourselves, as Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, as the pure virgin bride for her husband. Pure and righteous. So how are you doing on that? I know none of us would say, man, I'm I'm right there. I'm ready. Something beautiful, it tells us, Paul, recording for us in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Let me ask a question. When you look in the mirror, do you see spots and wrinkles? 
Anybody? <laughs> when you look in the mirror, do you see perfection? Lying mirror. I'll tell you one thing, the mirror in, in, that hangs in, in our bathroom at home is a lying mirror. Because there's oftentimes my wife comes out and says, honey, do I look this or do I feel that? Because when I look at myself, I see this and I see that. And I'm like, lying, stinking mirror. It's not what I see. I see the most beautiful woman on the planet. What are you talking about? I want to go break that thing. <laughs> That's not what I see. And the way that we see ourselves isn't how Jesus sees us. Because again, there was an exchange that took place. Our sin for his righteousness. Jude verse 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in his presence, the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. We stand in his presence blameless because of what he did. Blameless. That's his job. With great joy. That's our job. <laughs> Rejoicing. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper. If you are a born-again believer here today, you have an invitation to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Everybody in the room, the king of the universe is extending you an invitation to this event. How have you responded? How have you RSVP'd? And this is again between, in all of us, in our hearts right now. How have you RSVP'd to that invitation? Honestly, truthfully. Let the Lord and the Holy Spirit speak to your heart right now. Have you responded with reluctance, indifference, apathy? even antagonistic towards it and tired of hearing it and frustrated with this? Or have you responded in humility, realizing that it's a necessity to have this invitation and that we need to come humbly and broken and exchange our sinful lives for his righteous life, be clothed in his righteous garments that he provides for us, filled with thanksgiving and praise. There's only one way to be dressed properly, only one way. But it's a free way. The garments are free. We just need to receive them. Exchange our filthy rags for a perfect custom fit garment. Now I've said that a couple of times and I'm, I want this to sink in because this is important. These garments are custom fit. It's not a one size fits all. Because we can oftentimes look at the suffering of Jesus on the cross as to pay the penalty for the sins of the whole world, which it is. But it's each individual sin of each individual sinner. All my sin washed away. That garment is custom fit for me. All your sin washed away. Custom fit for you glorious glorious we prepare this morning for communion and i love how god works <laughs> i i don't sit out months in advance and plan on which sundays we're going to be talking about what and make sure communion falls on certain things and all that 
God's just that cool, <laughs> that we celebrate communion this morning. Because in this time now, as we do, and the worship team comes up and the ushers come forward, we need to reflect and remember what these custom-fit garments cost him. That's what communion is about, to remember his suffering that in our place, to pay the penalty for our sin. But also, we look forward to that day when we can wear these garments in his presence. Because Jesus said, I will not take of the cup again until that day. So we remember, we reflect, we worship, we rejoice, but we look forward also to that day. Let's pray.